That brings us to our um, consideration for today, and our consideration is from Stuart Kirk, uh, professor of social work at Columbia University and Cal California State University. And it's interesting that he writes this concerning the psychiatrist um, manual. And notice what he says about it. Since there are no biological tests for the vast majority of mental disorders, I don't know if people knew this, no biological tests for the vast majority of mental disorders, the Psychiatric Association has tremendous leeway and what it chooses to classify or not classify as an illness. Where the association draws the line between mental illness and well-being arbitrarily determines how much mental illness there will be in the population. The association is so eager to create and label disorders that it has revised the manual three times in 15 years and has expanded it from 106 mental disorders in the first edition to more than 300 in the new. These disorders and the criteria that describe them include the tragic, the strange, and the ridiculous. <laughs> yes, and, and you see that. So now they've added some more since this guy wrote this. And what is a mental disorder? If you're shy. Did you know that you have a mental disorder if you're shy? And, well, wait, grief. Grief is now a mental disorder. So if you're a grieving person, you have a mental health issue. The people who wrote this and came up with this are the ones with the mental health issues. They're nuts. And a lot of what they say go against scripture. It goes totally against scripture. They're redefining what truth is. And I don't know what to tell you. And I know that these guys, they got doctor written across their coat. Well, I'm doctor of psychology. Whoop-de-doo. And most of these people are Looney Tune. Wait until they find woke as mental <laughs> <laughs> That's not going to happen, Bill. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, and then what ends up happening is that... It depends which medical school you go to as to what is a mental illness. Right. It's very arbitrary, and it, what ends up happening is what they're doing is they're redefining truth. That's what they're doing. So nobody really is accountable for any behavior. We just pull out our victim card, right? I'm a victim. So that's, <laughs> allow your three-year-old daughter or son to pick their sex... Yeah. And her parents say, okay, that's not mental. Yeah, well, <laughs> for the people who are allowing it. <laughs> well, I say, yeah. it's, it's just it's some of the craziest things. But this is the fallen world that we're in. We have come again to um, the, um, our lesson on love. It's actually part 29. And we talk, started last week and we were talking about agape love. And so our whole uh, series has been on agape love and the importance of agape love among the believers and the church, and it's just so essential that we are uh, loving one another, and there's no substitute for it. And so if we don't love one another, then there's not going to be the kindness. There's not going to be the long-suffering. There's not going to be uh, the, what would you do? One of the things that you see with uh, the absence of love, reckoning of wrongs. All of these things come as a result of the believers not loving each other, <clears throat> and it causes a problem. 
And so we started looking at this agape love, and really interesting as it gets to a marriage relationship. So we talked about last week the importance of the the love of a father, a, a husband, for his wife, and how important that is. Now I really think that uh, uh, the husband's love for the wife is huge, and I think that it actually initiates something in the woman. And so a lot of husbands will try to shy away from the ideal that I have a responsibility to love my wife. And they don't want to accept that responsibility. Well, if you're going to accept the responsibility as the head, you better accept the responsibility of what Christ said about loving your wife. And so there's a lot that is involved in that, and we talked about that. Today, what we want to see is really ironic as you look at agape love as it relates to the wife. Do you know, we're going to see this is a really interesting thing, that there is not one scripture that says to the wife, agape love your husband. There's not one. Now, I read you out of Titus chapter 2, and we're going to see it. You see that word for love that is used there in Titus and in the scripture that I read? It's actually not the word agape. It's a totally different word, and we're going to see it. Then that brings up a question. Why? Why is the emphasis, and I think it really reemphasizes what we talked about last week. Why is there no scripture telling a wife to agape love her husband, but four times, four times, it tells the husbands, love your wife. It's really interesting, isn't it? Well, I think that what we're going to see is that the wife loves her husband in a different way than the husband loves his wife. And though it's not mentioned, you see the inference of it throughout Scripture. And I also believe from Scripture that the husband's love of the the, wife uh, a, the lo- husband's love of his wife really stirs something in that wife. And she responds to that love. And so, fellas, I hate to tell you, and we talked about it last week, our love for our wives is huge. It's huge. And, you know, I can, I can complain about my wife and say, oh, my wife's not doing this, my wife's not doing that. Sometimes, I'm not saying all the time, sometimes I can look and, you know, what did somebody say one time? Um, the followers reflect leadership. The followers reflect leadership. And it makes a huge difference, and we don't think it's that big of a deal, but it, do, it is. And so we're going to look at today this issue of the wife and how she shows love and toward her husband. And there are some things, and you know that this is, and this is going to draw a line of delineation between um, um, phileo and agape, because in Titus it says that the older women will teach the younger women to be fond of their husbands. 
really interesting. Why did he say that? It really draws a delineation between agape and phileo, for sure. And we'll see it. Father, we're grateful for the opportunity of being able to look at these things and grateful to as believers that we have the opportunity to be able to um, love each other as believers and that as we love each other, that the world will see something different in us than they see in each other. And we're thankful that this really reaches its apex uh, in a marriage relationship as the husband is able to love the wife and nurture her and nourish and, and cherish her and that he's dedicated to her, that there's a relationship in which the wife is able to love her husband and how she responds to him and the reverence that she has for him, that it makes a huge difference in how the world sees your quality of life on display. And we're so thankful for that potential in your son's name. We pray. Amen. And so we see in first uh, <clears throat> in uh, Titus chapter two is where we start. And he starts off in, in Titus chapter two. And uh, just to give you a background here <clears throat> in uh, what was happening in Crete, uh, Crete uh, probably could have been like any of your inner cities of America. Uh, it was full of a lot of debased people. Um, a lot of lazy people. Well, we see that in a lot of your inner cities. People who don't want to work. Uh, slovenly people. These kind of people are heralded today. Uh, people who are slovenly, who are lazy. And they're, they're seen and heralded today as heroes. They're not heroes. They're horrible people. And they shouldn't be um, bandied about and, and praised uh, if you go back into the Proverbs, there's nothing good said about lazy people. Nothing. And so, and then you see it again over in First Thessalonians, what Paul told the Thessalonians. He says, hey, you know, you have some people who are walking disorderly. And he goes on to say, oh, you shouldn't say this today. If a man don't work, he ought not to eat. <laughs> well, people don't see that today. Oh, you just don't know their circumstances. It doesn't matter the circumstances. Work. People don't want to say that today. And so Crete was full of this kind of things. And what did Paul say? The Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and slow bellies. Right? Well, that was a fancy way of saying they were lazy. And so what is a slow belly? They were so lazy that when they ate their food, it digested slowly in their bellies. Lazy people. Well, this is the backdrop in which Paul goes into Crete and he tells Titus how to order the church of God in the midst of this kind of society. This society does affect the people in it, even Christians. If you're not careful, the society will have you acting just like it. And so he goes in and he's laying down the foundation of how people ought to order themselves in the church of God. And he starts off in chapter one and he's talking about the bishops. Notice in verse uh, 
6, he says, if any, how do you appoint a person who is a bishop? Uh, and I, okay, let me say it again. The word bishop is actually the accurate word for pastor teacher, but please don't call me bishop, Jeanette. <laughs> it's not, I don't want to be, that word carries a bad connotation today, right? When you think of a bishop, you don't think of a pastor teacher today. But that's actually the accurate word for it. And he says here, if any be blameless, the husband of one wife, faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly, for a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine to both exhort and to convince the gainsayers. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things they ought not. And why do they do it? For filthy lucre, for money. And so you had that going on um, in Crete. And he goes on to say one of themselves, even their own, own poets said, the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts and slow bellies. And notice Paul says, yep, they're still this way today. And I talked to someone who spent some time in Crete as late as 20 years ago. And they said, yep, still true today. <laughs> the Cretans are still that way today. <laughs> and he says, this witness, in wait, hey, this poet that quoted this, he quoted this in like 600 B.C. So as Paul was writing, they were still that way. And we've had another couple of thousand years, and it don't still look like they've changed. They are consistent. Yeah, they are consistent. <laughs> so he says, this witness is true. Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. And this idea of teaching circumcision and, and law teaching that turn men from how to overcome their sin natures. Unto the pure, all things are pure, but unto them the defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. Even their minds and consciences defiled. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny him. Being abominable. And disobedient and to every good work reprobate. So now this is the backdrop of the kind of people that he's writing to. And so uh, that, that uh, he's dealing with, uh, Titus is dealing with in Crete. Now I think Titus was a little bit different than Timothy. Paul did not have to write Titus a, uh, epistles to encourage him to stand firm. Timothy, I think, was, um, he was, he was, he was struggling. And when someone blew back at him, uh, he 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 crumpled. Titus didn't. I think Titus was a little bit more forceful. He was able to deal with problems and issues, and he wasn't he wasn't uh, having the problems that Timothy did. And so, notice here in chapter two, he says, "But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine." And so he's ordering how people ought to behave in the church. And typically, you know, the people who are more mature should be teaching those who are younger. Unfortunately, it doesn't always happen this way. You have people who have been in the church all their lives, and you wouldn't want them teaching your little kid anything. 
Because they haven't changed. They haven't matured. They haven't grown. Right? And you wouldn't want them to convey anything to anyone. But this idea of the aged men, the elder men, that they be sober. That word sober is a, having a saving frame of mind. A mind that is locked in on who they are in Christ. What God has provided for us by grace. And that they, they are continually seeing life that way. And, and that they be grave. That word grave is, um, uh, is a simnos. It's a word that means to be above it all. It's used of the Greek gods that they saw back in uh, the uh, Greek mythology that the God, Greek gods were seen as above all. And it comes down into uh, the vernacular here as those who are living in a way that they are above it all. And so temperate, uh, again, temperate is to have um, uh, self-control, sound in faith and in, and in uh, charity and in patience. Now, here we, is what we wanted to get to, that the aged women, the mature, the ones who are maturing, uh, you have, hopefully, as you're in a situation in a local church, that you have women who are maturing spiritually. It used to be that you would have aged women that they grew older, they had some wisdom, but some of that wisdom is just worldly wisdom. But if you have people who are growing older and they are growing spiritually, now that's wisdom. And they can impart this wisdom to the younger women. And notice what they could impart here, that the aged women, likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness. Not false accusers. All right, what false accusers is slanderers. Um, you know, so uh, not given to much wine. Now, here you have the perfect form of uh, doulas, and it's being slaved by it. Um, and so this idea of being slaved by uh, drink. In other words, you're, you're, you're being a drunkard. They're, they're, drunk, they're drunkards. And you say, well, I've not seen any people in churches. Again, I've told you, I've seen a lot of things in churches that I can't unsee. And I have seen this very thing happen, unfortunately. That there are people in your churches that are drunkards. They're functional drunkards. Not, but teachers of good things. That word teachers of good things is that you have the composition of the word kalos. And so kalos, so I believe these is, you have two main words in, that are good in Scripture, and I believe this is how these words are working. You have agathos, which is inherently good, and then you have kalos, which is as I'm doing, as I'm led by the Holy Spirit, that was inherently good. I will act on the outside, and that behavior will be seen by others as beautiful and how I conduct myself. And so this, these women would be teachers of good things. Now, notice he's going to play off of that, that the reason that they could do this and they would be in this position, in order that they might teach the younger women to be sober or to have a saving frame of mind, to, to think and to understand how to think about who we are in Christ now you see that word uh, sober-minded. Let's just look at one illustration of it, this, uh, this combination here in Romans 12, verse 3. 
Romans chapter 12 and verse 3. <clears throat> and so Paul talks about it. He goes through and he talks to the Romans and he's telling them how to live and that it's from a transformation of your mind. So you've been regenerated in the realm of your human spirit. You and I have been regenerated. That's where we've been regenerated at. Your soul and your body are not saved yet. Your spirit is where you've been regenerated. And he's telling the believers to live in that realm of that that regenerated spirit. Verse 1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice acceptable unto God, which is your really is your logical priestly service. The way that they translate it, reasonable service is logicon latreo. And it's your logical priestly service. And notice he says in verse 2, and be not conformed. I really stop being conformed to this age. The word world is age. But be transformed by the renewedness of your mind. See, your mind has already been renewed. You just have to live in it. Ephesians 4.23. You don't have to renew your mind. Your mind has been renewed. And so I would translate that by the renewedness of your mind. That you may prove what is good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God. Verse 3. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you not to think of himself more highly, but to think soberly according as God has uh, dealt to every man the measure of faith. I can think of myself as being in my position and being co-equal with you in my position in Christ. Do you know that keeps me from thinking that I'm more than what I am? Do you know Paul said in the second Corinthians that he really was concerned that people would not see him above what he really is? Just a man who lives and has a position in Christ, just like any other believer. And so this idea of the saving frame of mind, notice with the saving frame of mind back in Titus, what could these women do? It's from this saving frame of mind, it says uh, in verse 4, that they might teach the younger women to be sober, to have a saving frame of mind, to love, no, notice, to love their husbands and to love their children. Now, I think it's odd even that you would have to say to a woman that she should be affectionate toward her husband. Or, even worse, that she she should be affectionate toward her children. It's odd to me. But we could see it in this society today, where women have been taught the opposite. Right? What are they told today? You're in control of your own destiny. It's you. It's about your independence. I was in uh, a place here recently... And I heard a word that I'd never heard of uh, before, that women have come up with a word that when men try to explain themselves, they call it mansplaining. (laughs) Mansplaining. Well, this is men just trying to explain away, (laughs) uh, make excuses for whatever it is that they're doing. It's called mansplaining. And I thought, what? (laughs) I've never heard of that before. Maybe That's a good thing. <laughs> Mansplaining. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll let one of you guys research that. And so, so here you have this word that is to love their husbands. Is the word phil- philandros, 
which is the combination of philos, which is to be fond of or to be affectionate. It's interesting how that's different from agape. Agape, remember, is to, uh, is to self-sacrifice for a person and that you're giving them what they need. Now, I do think that this is a part of agape love and that how they manifest that is that they're showing affection. They're showing affection. <coughs> and you have a situation where you have a lot of relationships. When a, <coughs> a lot of relationships, there is no affection between a husband and wife. One of the things that really struck me was, uh, I think it was J. Vernon McGee talking about a woman whose husband had died and she was standing over his casket. And they had such a wonderful relationship. And she said, a few months before he died, we're still on our honeymoon. We're still on our honeymoon. And you think about the cynicism of people today in marriages. Honeymoon does not come to mind. <laughs> I mean, that's not what they would say, right? And what did she say when she was standing over his casket? See you in the morning. The affection, the appreciation that is there for a husband is possible in a marriage when a husband or a woman, I believe, has the love for her husband that it's seen out in a completely different way. And so you see this word is used in composition in several different places. And I, <clears throat> I give you the scripture where you can go back and, and see this word philos as it's used in composition with other words. Uh, we don't have time but I, to go through the text there, but I gave you the scriptures. You can look at them. Now, uh, several lexical definitions for this word phileo, and I, I just want to show you that it is different from agape, but I think that sometimes it works in harmony with him. Uh, Richard Trench in his New Testament <coughs> gives this word. He gives two definitions I want to give you here. He says, Cicero wrote concerning a friend, I do not esteem the man merely, but I love him. There is something of the passionate warmth of affection in the feeling which I regard him. And so that's affectionate feeling that you have towards someone that you have toward your husband, that a wife would have toward her husband. And you would think that this would be a natural thing to happen, but I do think in the course of certain situations and relationships, probably it could dissipate. And that the, younger, the older women would be able to teach the younger women how to rekindle that. Notice what Richard Trent says again. Respect and reverence are continually implied in the agape, which, though not excluded by, are still not involved in phileo. While men are continually bidden to love God and good men declare to do, the fondness of God is commanded to them never. You do not see what scripture tells men to be fond of God is what he's saying you do see that he tells you to agape him. What is he doing? He's making a distinction between agape and phileo. Why is this important? Because the thing that is involved here is the affection that a woman needs to show toward her husband. Now, I think these both work in harmony. So the husband, on the one hand, is to agape his wife 
and to nourish and cherish her, the response then is the affection coming from the wife. And what does it create? create? Just a warm, wonderful relationship. It really does. It creates an unreal relationship. I tell people that creates a slice of heaven on earth. I love being with my wife. I'm glad the kids are going. We're having a wonderful time. <laughs> We're having a wonderful not that I didn't. <laughs> we wish we enjoyed our time with them. <laughs> okay, I'm backtracking here. We did enjoy our time with you guys. <laughs> But we're having a wonderful time now, right? (laughs) That's just spite. And so, Loanita gives it this definition, pertaining to having affection for, or I like Dank and what he gives on the phileo and to be attentive to the interest, or I would say the well-being of a husband i.e., in a manner observable to others. And what you see is, is the woman then is responding to her husband. So you see it on both sides. The husband won't love his wife. The woman is not responding. Now you just got a stalemate, you see. And you have a cold, frigid relationship. That's not glorifying to God at all. It's not glorifying to God. The marriage relationship is supposed to be, as we said here, it's a mystery, uh, as we saw in Ephesians last week, and it's a picture of the relationship of Christ toward his church. Now imagine that and how that that works itself out. Um, Let's jump a couple of, so the wives are indirectly instructed to love their husbands. And so it's not that the wife gets a pass in agape love, but I think that she expresses it in a different way. So we see, and I give you all these scriptures, of the responsibility that we have to love each other. But I think it's the expression of those as the expression of the love of the wife toward the husband that's different. Now notice what happens here. Wife has has a different role in marriage, and let's look at that and we'll move forward. Look, if you would, at 1 Timothy chapter 5. One of the things that I learned early on is um, we have different responsibilities. And so while the husband is the head of the house, uh, overall, the wife is the house ruler. Did you know that? Did you know that the wife is the house despot? Do you know I don't tell my wife what color the, the wall should be? I could care less, honestly. I don't care what carpet she puts on the floor. I don't care what kind of furniture she puts in the house. I don't care, really. And I don't have a desire for that. (laughs) Okay, let me backtrack. (laughs) Wendy says I would care if it was $1,000. Yes, I do care somewhat. But she has an ability to do things that the husband cannot do. 
and we get it here from Scripture. We see it in a couple of places. Notice in First uh, Timothy 5, and notice what it says here. I will, therefore, that the younger women marry, that they bear children, and notice, see this? Guide the house. Guide the, you know what that guide the house means? It's actually a, a um, word, and it's really stronger when you see it in the Greek language. It's oikos despotos. It's a house ruler. It's, that word is actually used of a dictator. And I felt that before. <laughs> when I go to put certain pictures up in that house. That the wife is a house ruler. A house guide. She guides the house. And really the husband should not be dictating to his wife what should happen in that house. As an overseer, yes. But he should not be interfering with her realm of authority. He really shouldn't. Now let me show you, because it's so important, it's said again. Notice in Titus 2.5. Now, I'm saying this because when we get to the point of what the woman is supposed to do, it's clearly not saying what people will say that it's saying. Uh, when we start seeing the way that a wife responds to her husband. Notice in Titus 2, 5. Notice in verse 5, it says that they be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. And so you see how the husband was supposed to be of the right mindset with his wife, uh, um, uh, with his wife, and that uh, in order that the that the word of God uh, that the that there was a good testimony. I was looking at the uh, word there. Sorry, I took my eyes off it. Keepers at home. The wife is supposed to order herself in a in a certain way, so that God can be glorified in how she conducts herself. What is the word here? Keepers at home. The word keepers at home is the word orkaruas, and it literally means a house guide. A house guide. One who works in the home and takes care of the home. She orders and structures the home. And that's probably a spending limit that her husband gives her. But... But she orders and she structures the home. So this, and why did I stop here? To show you, well, when you come back and you look at, if you turn over to Ephesians, when you look back at it, people will say, aha, submission means, wife, get, you're below me. It's not saying that. Why would he say this and then come over and change it to say that submission is, is servitude? Why would he do that? No, that's not what he's doing. Notice in Ephesians chapter 5. And again, I, I would st- you would start this in the middle of wars here. <clears throat> in verse 22, and wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands and notice as unto the Lord. Now, I always find this interesting that he put as unto the Lord. Maybe your husband's not doing what he's supposed to be doing, but it doesn't matter. You're doing it as unto the Lord, not as unto him. 
God's the one that's going to be glorified in how you conduct yourself, right? It's not as unto your husband. You're doing it as you're doing it unto the Lord. And notice he goes on, and he said, this word for submit is, uh, and I've given you several uh, places where you find that word for submission uses the word hupotassel, and it's used in the New Testament, and I would give it this definition. The arranging oneself under or the yielding to the rule of one place in authority by a superior to maintain direction and order and to provide for the well-being of those under their authority. Let me say it again. Arranging oneself under or yielding to the rule of one place in authority by a superior to maintain direction and order and to provide for the well-being of those under their authority. And so the one who they're submitting to is not someone who is trying to make them slaves. They're put in authority for the well-being of those under their authority. And as a result, the wife puts herself under the authority of the husband to receive the benefit of what God has given him the instruction to do. Is this servitude? No. We see over in Second Peter that they are what? Co-heirs together. Co-heirs together. Different responsibilities. Right? Different responsibilities. And so you could see this word, and we don't go there, but in Luke 2.51 it talks about the Lord who put himself under the authority of his parents. Do you think that that was demeaning for him? See, people think today that submission is demeaning. That it's demeaning. I won't put myself under anybody's authority. Uh, Why, I came from this, or do you know who I am? Yeah, we really do, and that's probably why you need to submit. (laughs) Yeah, look, if we're not spiritual and our sin natures are out of control, we could be some bad individuals. And if we're not spiritual, we're not going to submit to anybody. We're not. And so notice... I want to give you three day, uh, several ways here that you see that the wife is able to, uh, through her submission, be able to show agape love. One um, is that she submits to her husband. And as she submits to her husband, well, really, it's just one issue I want to focus on here. Ephesians chapter 5. Now, look at verse 33, what he says here. As she submits to her husband... Notice what happens here. He, he comes off of talking about, in verse 28, so ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loves his wife loves himself. No man ever, ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes it, even as the Lord, the church, for we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall uh, be joined to his wife, and the two shall be, and we talked about this last week, one flesh. What a great picture when a husband and wife have such a relationship with each other that when you see them, they're operating as one. 
It's a picture. And so notice what happens here. Paul says in verse 32, This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Verse 33, Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself. Now, that's a pretty high standard because there's a lot of men who really love themselves. Well, I, I really see a lot of these guys. I mean, we used to braid our hair when we were younger, but we never did the, the, uh, the uh, dreads and this kind of stuff. But men spend a lot of time on their hair and their bodies. And I, so I see a lot of people who really love themselves. And notice the standard there. But notice what he says here toward the wife. And, and the wife see that she reverences her husband. Now, here you have the word reverence. is actually the word phobos. Phobos is used in a couple of ways. It's a fear of harm. And it's also used as a, a reverential fear. Now, some people would think it's fear of harm. Well, maybe if you're married to the wrong man, possibly. <laughs> it shouldn't be that with regard to a marriage relationship. And so you can see that word, that fear of harm here, as it's used in 1 Peter 3.15, of those suffering from persecution. That they were fearful of being harmed. That's not what is in view here. This kind of fear? Reverential fear. Or really, you could say, respect. You know what you see in Ephesians Wives need the husband's love more than anything else. They need to be nurtured or cherished and nourished, as we talked about last week. Husbands, you know what they really need more than anything else? Absolutely. You want to get a husband under his skin, disrespect him. Show no, rev- no reverence for him. Men can deal with a lot of things, but one of the things that really gets under the skin of a man is disrespect. Well, you can see it with these gang members out here. You're going to respect me or I'm going to kill you, right? And so this, if this kind of fear here, this reverential fear, it's, you can see it used in a couple of places. And let's look at those. It would be great to, to see that in uh, closing. Notice in Romans chapter 13 and verse 3. Chapter what? Romans chapter 13. Now this could be here uh, listed fear of harm. Um, I kind of saw it in the 3 because it's usually a couple of times in 3 and in 5. Um, uh, Well, yeah, this, this will be more fear of harm, but we can look at it in 13 and, and uh, 3 uh, through 5. So start with verse 1. Let every soul be subject to higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisted the power, or really the authority, resisted the ordinance of God, they that resist shall receive them of themselves damnation. For the rulers are not terror of good works, but of the evil. Wilt thou then be afraid of the power do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is a minister of good 
to see uh, to thee for good. But if thou do that which is afraid, evil, be afraid, for he bears not the sword in vain. He is a minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon those that do evil. So that's really a, a fear of harm. And what happens here, you even have these rulers that are set up, and some of them are very evil, and they are set up for the good of the people. If you do not have, if you didn't have human government in certain places, and there's been places where human government has broken down, and what do you have? You have just all kinds of people roaming through the streets, raping and pillaging. You have a chaotic disorder. And so God has given human government to keep order. He's an avenger for the good of the people. And so anybody that dis, uh, uh, dis, uh, obeys him, then there is a fear of harm as it regards that. Now notice in um, Galatians chapter 3 and verse 22. Uh, now, let's look at um, 1 Peter 3. I'll get it right here soon. For some reason, my scriptures are off. 1 Peter 3 and verse 15. And so here you have a fear not of uh, harm, but it's a fear of displeasing God. And so notice in verse uh, 14. And if you suffer for righteousness sake, happy are ye and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to the one who asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and in fear. And so the fear here is what, what are you fearful of here? It's not a fear of harm here. The fear here in this context is a fear of displeasing God. And so you have this opportunity as the believer is in these situations in the world. And notice he says, uh, you set aside Jesus as Lord in your hearts and be ready to give a defense. Now, I really think what's happening here is, is as you and I live and God's life is seen out through us, Someone's going to see the way that we live. This is the best evangelistic tool you can have. And they're going to say, why do you live the way that you live? Now you have an opportunity that we were to give a defense is the word apologetics. And notice, he doesn't say that you go out in the world and just, just spread out apologetics. That's not what he says. Notice there is a caveat put to this, that you give a reasoned defense to what? The one who asks you about the hope that is in you. They, that presupposes that they see something in your life. And notice how you do it with meekness. Meekness is keeping an objectivity of mind that you're not distracted from the things that they will take you through. You keep coming back to the point of what the issue is, and that issue would be the gospel and fear. And I believe here a reverential fear that you don't want to displease God 
in this process and how you order things. And so you have this reverential fear, and I believe that that's as you, you deal with this issue with the woman over in Ephesians 33, that's what he's talking about. It's not a fear that she's going to be harmed by her husband. But do you know when a, re- a woman really loves her husband, she wants to please him. She'll do everything to please him. She's not going to be calculating, coming up with things, thinking about things to do him harm. She's going to only want to please him. Now, it wasn't agape wasn't mentioned there from a wife's point of view, but can't you see it? And how it works out. And how she relates to her husband. I keep telling uh, a lot of men that will listen. I think First Peter three is one of the most consequential scriptures there is on marriage. I know people go back to Ephesians five, but I think First Peter three is huge because it tells husbands what women will never tell you. What really is on their minds. And do you know what's really on the minds of many women? And you would have to waterboard some of them to find out. I always joke. The fear of not having their needs met. And Peter warns them against it. He says, don't be terrorized by it. And then he gives an admonition to the husband. of how to relate to his wife. Just think about it. You have this agape love that we have that can be shown out in a marriage relationship. What better place for it to be seen? It's on display for everybody to see. One of the most difficult relationships to have. Right? What better place to see agape love lived out than in the life of a believing man and a believing woman? What a beautiful picture that it shows forth. And I think it creates the opportunity for those believers to be able to glorify God in ways that the unsaved man could only dream about. Father, we're grateful for the opportunity of being able to look at these things and grateful as believers that we can glorify you in the way that we conduct ourselves, particularly related to agape love and and particularly how it it manifests itself in a marriage relationship. We're so thankful, Father, that we have the privilege of being able to glorify you while we're in these bodies in this way. The unsaved man can never do this, but you've allowed us to be able to do it. And we're so thankful for the privilege of it. In your son's name we pray. Amen.